Community and Capital. Mm-hmm. We're back. Look at us, live from quarantine in London. How is it? Uh, you know, it is what it is. It's fine. I can't complain. Uh, I got my Uber Eats. I've got good recommendations. Thank you for the Frank O. Manca pizza recommendation. Uh, just having a good, have a good little time here in solitary for the last five days. I think where, where I want to start today is actually a fascinating quote that Jesse Walden said the other day. So investing has become a team sport that you play with your friends on the internet. So that's a pretty profound statement, right? That really changes investing when you think about the things that Wall Street Bets has done, when you think about crypto and how the aggregation of community on Reddit, mm. Discord, Twitter, other online forums and communities. I think we got to unpack this because this is so profound when it comes to what investing means going forward. Yeah. And look, it's the thing. I saw that pull quote and I got excited and retweeted it because this is like the ethos of what we're building here, right? It's this idea of the intersection of community and capital. We have social media ubiquity. We have all these great tools that are now connecting people in, in pretty awesome ways in real time to you know to collaborate to invest together to just just do all kinds of things with their money and i think it's definitely one of the most exciting trends on which to be investing right now and so much of this is still happening using the old pipes using not the web3 pipes but the sort of og finance pipes which you know have a lot going for them but still have a lot of limitations do you think that in order for investing with friends in its true form, I think what what Jesse means to work, does it have to be done on new Web3 rails for it to work in its best form? Or can it actually function in its current form on Web2 rails or, or more traditional finance rails? I think it will continue to function well. This all, for me, it always comes back to user experience. It's going to keep functioning well enough on the traditional sort of finance rails, so long as the software experience and everything else is still delightful and good. But long term, I really believe so much of what Web3 enables is just creative execution of financial technology that just couldn't be, that you just literally could not do with centralization that you'd have to do with decentralized tech. And so building Reddit taught me that you can never you never bet against the organic creativity of millions and millions of people all over the world collaborating versus the creativity of even the most the most talented, the best compensated, the most amazing centralized group of people. Whether it's paying a bunch of editors and writers in a room to come up with amazing content or building software that allows millions and millions of people to sort of figure out the quote unquote best content. The latter group's going to win every single time. And so you're looking at the same thing where investing with friends is delightful, whether it is today, you know, going diamond hands on AMC 
and talking about it with your friends or trying to convince them to buy. Uh, I just bought some Bored Ape Yacht Club NFTs, right? Just for giggles, because a couple of people on Twitter were making me laugh. And I was like, all right, yeah, I'll get a couple of these apes. And there's no way JP Morgan Chase comes up with the asset class of an NFT for Bored Ape Yacht Club. And nor would it work because so much of what makes it work is the ethos of it being sort of silly and anti-establishment and self-aware and all that stuff. So I think, yes, in the meantime, it's going to keep being on these traditional rails. But I mean, look, Andreessen, who I think that's where he works. Um, he used to. He left and started his own fund called Variant. Ah, Okay. And you see that, and it's pretty obvious to me, you know, they just closed on another third, a third crypto fund. $2.2 billion. billion. <laughs> They're here to play. They're here to move. And I think they've clearly invested very well. And there's, you know, these, this is the fruits of that success. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think about, right? Think about how traditional finance has to catch up to this new way of investing, because I think what's what's interesting about what you're saying is that it all boils down to user experience. And if you unpack Jesse's quote about investing become a team sport that you play with your friends, what it gets to is trust. Who do you trust? You trust your friends. We're seeing this happen even in venture capital with rounds now being a, an amalgamation of people who are friends or friendlies who the entrepreneur trusts. It's other founders who they know. It's yep. angels who they feel are very helpful. We're seeing, for lack of a better term, party rounds. But now maybe party rounds are not being constructed in a negative way. They're being mm -hmm. constructed in a positive way to bring together a collection of people who can actually help the business in a way that maybe a smaller group can't. And then we're seeing it happen in crowdfunding as well, platforms like Republic, et cetera. So it's interesting to think about how the meaning of trust has changed in finance. So used to be institutions were what we trusted. Now, maybe it's friends. And then the question becomes, how do traditional financial services firms keep up with this trend? And, and is there a way for them to do it on the traditional rails? I think if, if it's their preference, they'd have it be done on traditional rails because then they can still control those rails to some extent, or at least understand how those rails, in a sense, right? So, look, let's and let's not get this twisted either. Like when we say friends, it really that is the the loosest definition, right? These can just be people who, like know each other as random users on the internet. Like they could have never met in real life or offline. This is the loosest definition of friends. So two people with mutual respect is where I would see the, the bar being, right? And maybe that's not even always the case, but let's just leave it at that, right? What has happened is founders, and, and we've talked about this trend too, right? Founders have, especially founders working on dope stuff, have more and more leverage than ever. And they're really looking to have people on their cap table who can be helpful, who will be helpful. And as there's more software to make that helpfulness more obvious beyond just like, hey, join a group chat in our newsletter, that shift is inevitable. And so this notion of the party round of people with mutual respect for one another who happen to both invest, it's, that's only going to get more and more prevalent for sure uh, because it harkens back to the shift that we're seeing across the industry, which is people don't want just the money. 
the the money is fairly commoditized. They want to know who's actually in the in their corner, who's actually helping them, how they can help them. They want to see specifically what they're doing. And I think it, it bodes really well because there are groups of these investors who respect one another for the work they do. Like, why not share deals? And are you saying that the incentive mechanisms of crypto or tokenization of activities that then can be monetized end up becoming a better way to aggregate groups of people, call it friends, who can then help a business rather than kind of more traditional equity or other forms of payment? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, some of this, okay, if we're talking about a lot of these alternative assets, you've got situations where it behooves you to not just have other people buy in because they can be helpful. It behooves you to have other people buy in because it creates the meme of this is a thing worth putting your money into. And whether it is, you know, AMC stock or whether it is a, an NFT of a board ape at a yacht club, you see this. It, it's it's an interesting virtuous cycle. Like it's it behooves people to want to be helpful. It behooves them to want to support one another. Now, that obviously can lead to a sort of a group delusion. But what are these things other than just group delusions? I mean, that like, that's, that's kind of what, <laughs> it's what makes society work, this like group delusion that we all buy in. In that context too, right, the other aspect of having crypto tokens generally means liquidity, whereas owning stock of a company generally means more illiquidity and it's harder to trade those assets. So when you think about aggregation of communities around a certain idea or company or belief, do you think liquidity plays a role in all of this that makes it um, in some ways more transient, but also the fact that it, it can be traded means that there's some level of like, increased accessibility so more people more people may want to be a part of it yet there only may be a finite number of tokens available so that scarcity value it could be with a company there, there's other businesses that are thinking about doing this type of thing to create kind of excitement buzz fandom around it has the notion of liquidity play into all of this in a way that maybe traditional equity can't there is surely there's i mean well there's certainly liquidity for publicly traded companies but for the privately held ones you're right. There isn't right now. Look, this is another one where folks like folks like probably Republic, even to a certain extent, too, like we're going to see secondary markets get more and more efficient. And so I do think over time there will be more and more liquidity. Like it's it's kind of a mind job, too, to think about. But like a company like I what is stopping a company in five years or let's say 10 years, as the technology gets better, maybe even the accredited investor status gets a little looser to like raise their seed round or pre-seed round and and then see the value of the company balloon just because the founders are very compelling or the idea is compelling. And all of a sudden in secondary, <laughs> these markets become very volatile. I mean, that's essentially, that's essentially what's happened with these tokens here for the last, you know, five-ish years. I mean, it, it certainly has its problems. Again, I don't think it, we're trending in a direction where there's going to be more of that, not less. And I think we just have this period of like awkwardness and then it becomes mainstream. Yeah. The question is, 
is that a good thing or not, right? And I think in the more traditional world, companies and founders and even early investors may be hesitant to see that happen because when you think about being marked to market every day, that is what public companies face. They face a reckoning every day, and that reckoning is the stock market. And that reckoning can change daily based on things that are related to the company or not. And there's some dangers to that, right? I mean, it, you can aggregate a group of people and they can determine to make a stock go up or down without necessarily any rhyme or reason behind it with, when it comes to the fundamental value of a company. Um, now, we know that early stage companies and even early stage protocols, I think you could you could extend this to, there's so much work and development that has to be done that if you were marked to market every day, there'd be tremendous amount of volatility, which is, <laughs> yeah. I think, one of the advantages of, of private markets to some extent, right, is that founders can build in relative peace without yes. having to worry about their team members worry about their stock price every day Features. or leaving, yeah, right? Because sure. like, It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. So, so the question is... And maybe there's a difference between the traditional world of equity and the world of crypto tokens. But gosh, would would the venture community, would founders actually want to be marked to market every day? Or is it just something you think they have to deal with and, and live with in a new reality? No, I don't I don't think I know I certainly wouldn't have wanted that. There is something really nice and I can I it there's a there is an advantage to illiquidity when you are investing in the right companies and can have a long-term sort of by design, have a long-term outlook because there, I won't name specific companies, but there are companies, deals that I've led and investments that I've done where, you know, the company reaches a billion dollar valuation. We're sort of weighing the pros and cons of getting some liquidity in a later round where we can get some money off the table, consider paying some money back to investors especially early on in my career, like investors of my first fund were very, very anxious to get some money back because, you know, it's a first fund. You want to see some dollars. And, you know, that first fund is now, a, I think, a 50x fund, but it took, you know, 10 years, nine years, whatever. But there was actually a portion, I think, three years ago where because of some strong pressure from our LPAC, I was, I was having a conversation with Gary. I'll, I'll take the L for it. I was like, look, I think we really need to do the right thing. You know, sell off a little bit of this company because it's going to give us a chance to pay back our investors. They'll be getting a good markup. It'll feel good. But like, <laughs> that's where the benefit of having the illiquid asset really would have paid off. Because if, if, if we didn't have that opportunity, if, you know, to cave to the pressure from our LPs, those LPs would have made a lot more money. I mean, they still did very well, but it's crazy to think how much more money they would have made if they had just waited two years, almost two and a half years. Like the stock doubled three times <laughs> in that period. And, you know, this was still a company we were excited by, but, you know, you get a little trigger happy because you've got LPs who've been, you know, waiting to get a return. I, I think you're hitting on actually a incredibly profound and important lesson for the world of venture and private markets, which is, and I've learned this the hard way too, that you hold on to the assets that 
have the chance to continue to compound because the compounding effects, like say you're up, you're up five so X and then it doubles in valuation. You're now up 10 X. The difference between five and 10 is massive. But then say it doubles another three. Like, like you said, example, that's, yeah. That goes from 10 to 30. And the difference between 10 to 30 is so massive, right? Where it's, it's in, in some ways, actually illiquidity, I think can be a feature, not a bug. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, look, the technology is going to bring on more and more liquidity. Founders, the the industry eventually will adapt to a place that I think ends up being best for founders because founders who have the leverage are still going to want to selfishly construct universes that are best for them. Actually, shout out Long Term Stock Exchange just had its first two companies list. Twilio. Twilio and Asana. The, you could do worse than that. It's weird. So Eric called me yesterday. I was a seed investor and he was like, hey, I got good news. The story's about to break. And, and I was like, oh, holy shit, dude. Like, we were a small seed investor. But he was like, yeah, you know, I'm really excited. Here are the two companies. You know, don't tweet about it yet. And I was like, damn, how'd you get them to switch to delist? And he said, well, that was the hack. We didn't get them to delist. They're still listed on both. They've just figured out a way to, I guess, somehow it's all, you know, the stock price is always going to be the same on both exchanges. But they found a way. And... It was interesting because like I don't know, as a finance guy, I, I, I'll i say this, you know, Eric is a special founder and, and certainly well-connected wrote Lean Startup. Like if there's anyone who's going to build a new stock exchange to help founders be better aligned, well, help everyone at a company be better aligned with their shareholders where essentially the, the amount of uh, voting rights, you know, these sort of other benefits that you accrue, accrue to you as a shareholder based on how long you've held the stock. Um, and really insulates companies from some of the shittiest behavior that happens in public markets so that, you know, the people who have the most weight are the ones who really care the most, who are the most long-term aligned with the business, which makes a lot of sense, right? How does that actually work? And and then is the move now to try to get more and more companies to dual list? And then one day the company is just like, you know what, we don't need to pay you know, New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or whatever. Have you seen that happen before? No. Um, well, this is brave new world, man. This is a brand new world, right? In terms of what the LTSC is trying to do. I think what they're trying to do from a theoretical perspective is, is absolutely right. Yes, we need public markets because we need mechanisms for liquidity. We also need mechanisms for, you know, kind of reckoning effectively. So public market investors have the ability to reckoning. take a view on on public companies. And so so there's some level of like responsibility on both ends and that's important. However, I do think that the at a high level the system of quarterly earnings may not necessarily be the best expression of a way to treat even a public company because I think part of the problem we see with public companies is that they're constantly thinking about the next quarter. That's more important than longer term mm -hmm. oh, yeah. growth for the business, the longer term silly. vision and shareholder value over over the long run. And that creates, I think, incentives that may not be the best for the business or even ultimately, certainly the team and ultimately the shareholders. So I think that the the vision of LTSE makes so much sense because then you can plan for the long term. You don't get penalized for doing something today that might actually be the right thing to do for tomorrow, but today you may get penalized for it. I think that 
kind of expresses itself in things like how you think about ESG more broadly, right? Who you have in terms of governance, what kind of environmental or social standards that you're holding your company to and how you're thinking about things, right? I mean, I think if, uh, just to take an example, I think if oil and gas companies were not measured on a quarterly basis, maybe they would think about the transition to clean energy Mm, with a more longer term thoughtful view. But they don't even have the bandwidth to do that. They don't have the bandwidth, but they they also don't have the incentives, though, either. I mean, big companies are not dumb. They're just slow. Mm -hmm. I mean, some are dumb and slow. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it, it is wrong to assume that they're both. Which is, I think, actually the advantage of startups. So I think the one interesting question that comes to mind here is if you do have a construction like the long-term stock exchange Mm -hmm. and companies are able to think for the longer term, does that change the world of startups? Because if bigger corporations can now actually think for the longer term and play this long game, think about the future, think about how startups may be innovating in and around them mm-hmm. and their shareholders won't penalize them on a quarterly basis for, hey, we don't have a great quarter of earnings because we actually decided to invest into growth or we decided to buy a mm-hmm. company that could actually help our business over the next five years, not, not the next one year, and they have a bad quarter. Does it change the way that the startup world has to interact with incumbents? Because that that is really the, at the core of the advantage for startups is speed. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's increasingly speed is everything there was i think i don't was it that same thread talking about how no it was a different thread but it was talking about how tiger and these others have shown up and are starting to really meddle with late stage vc simply because they can just move quickly the high resolution fundraising we, we've talked yeah. about this a little bit too yeah. right it's That's i mean real. how do you as a late stage growth investor with the need to have a board seat with the need mm-hmm. to uh do months of diligence, maybe, with the need to get comfortable with the founder and team, with the need to have certain ownership targets? How do you compete with an investor who comes in and does a lot of their work up front, right? They might hire consultants or have data to be able to figure out whether or not a company is good, but then don't ask for a board seat, don't have ownership targets, just say, hey, we're going to be hands-off, we're going to let you run your business, and we're going to give you a certain amount of money because they just have are playing a totally different game. And I think, yeah, I think that's another feature here that's a, a venture that's that's here to stay. Oh, it's it's totally happening. That makes me excited. I, I, we're seeing so much now get turned upside down. Money plays such a core role in society, whether it's getting a new idea off the ground or rewarding creators or all the things in between. And I I think this is long overdue, man. Well, I want to get to something that's actually right on that point. It's something that Lee Jin talked about the other day. She tweeted about the relationship between platforms and participants, particularly regards to the creator economy. So how creators Mm -hmm. should be able to own what they're doing or have some stake of ownership. And I think this ties into a lot of what we've discussed, right? Investing with friends, it becomes social. You wanna be a part of something, but those early on, if you're a participant or you're part of a platform, shouldn't you be able to own part of that growth and success story? Because without ownership, you are just providing value to a platform, but not necessarily benefiting from it. So I think no way this ties are. into all of all of that too. I mean, how do you think about the idea of 
ownership when it comes to empowering creators and early supporters of things. Look, we're seeing this trend. We're seeing it play out on cap tables. We're seeing it play out in party rounds. We're seeing it play out with NFTs. I think this is, it's going to be the way the best CEOs and the best leaders supercharge what they're building. Because ownership makes the community capital intersection as real as can possibly be. Because it's not just the community gets to use this service. It's not just this community gets to make money from the service. It's this community owns a stake of this service and all the success on it. And the 4D chess version of this, and I think Lee's absolutely right about this. This is, it's got to happen. So can incumbents compete with this? Should incumbents be thinking about how they can make people owners of what they're doing now. I know if they're a public company, people can own their stock. But I mean, think about the many of the creator platforms. I mean, why doesn't Uber make all of its participants on its platform, particularly the drivers, and that's supply mm. side, right? Who are actually creating the value for this middleman operator, whether it's Uber, it's Lyft, et cetera, Airbnb. Is there a way to for these incumbents to create a way for the supply side to actually own a piece of what they're doing or do totally new platforms need to be constructed? I think there will be some that adapt, but the vast majority, no, they're going to have to, someone's going to drink their milkshake. And it's just the story of innovation. And it's the story of rapid change and iteration and you know, not everyone's going to be able to stay along for the ride. Well, I mean, on that point, too, I think in some senses, you've talked about this a little bit in regards to the football club that you own, Angel City. But starting from scratch gives you the ability to construct the ownership of a team or the community of a team a little bit differently. Because I think what we've also talked about here, I mean, literal, the literal definition, investing has become a team sport that you play with your friends. <laughs> How is a sports there. team not the intersection of all of those things? It's something you, it's a team sport. It's something you play with your friends. And now there's a way to invest in it. I mean, how do you think about starting with a blank slate and being able to enable ownership, enable investing into things like a team sport, literally, a little bit differently. I think, look, you got it right there. Like that is, and you know, there's gonna be some stuff we'll be announcing and in our foray into NFTs. Um, there's some ways that we're thinking about doing this. Our, our other limitation is actually the league, which has its own rules for how this sort of governs things like ownership. But that said, they, they've been pretty amenable and, and they, I think, also see where the future is headed. I believe so, so strongly that even the idea of the sort of collaborative, the team metaphor that they're using is going to be second nature to this generation coming up. And that's, you know, so many of our fans are the sweet spot of like Gen Z or millennial parents who have Gen Z kids. That's really the heart of the Angel City FC fan base. And, and so there are a, a lot of them are digital native and a lot of them are at least digital and the rest are all at least digital sort of fluent. And that's going to be, this is a, just, it's a totally different worldview. And, and I think whether it is, you know, interacting with the team, whether it's wagering around the team, whether it's 
buying so rare cards of the team. Like there are the there are gonna be so many ways to not just feel invested figuratively in Angel City FC or, or other clubs, but like literally be. I mean, again, that's user experience. It is a lot of it is going to be happening on traditional fintech rails, but uh, there's plenty of things that are going to be happening that are built on Web3. I wonder how much of this has just come about because we've now lived in the era of social. And what I mean oh, by yeah. social is like consumer social. So platforms like Facebook, Twitter. I mean, even when I was at, at Goldman in 2012, I was trying to think about how in capital markets, right? My generation had grown up on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Would we want to interact with software differently? Bloomberg has its has its utility for sure, but would we want a different, to your point, user experience? And we've, we've talked about this a little bit too, but, but have we just reached the tipping point of consumer social where people are now so native in the world of social online that they think about things differently in ways that, you know, sports teams could never imagine fans doing or interacting with their teams, players, leagues 10, 15, 20 years ago. Dude, I, you don't understand. Like 15 years ago when I'm pitching Reddit to people, they were shocked, like a borderline appalled 16 years ago. God, I'm old. At the idea that people <laughs> would spend a material amount of their day just commenting on the internet. Like it was inconceivable to them. And I think of that now and I'm just like, wow, like that is, of course, like, of course people do that. Like everyone, my dad knows that now, <laughs> like they all spend so many people spend so much time of their lives online, creating content, consuming content that other random people created that now I look at this and I'm like, okay, all of this exists and we almost can take it for granted because it took a generational shift. It took a lot of stuff to get everyone to realize like, okay, here's where we're at. And now I look at this and I, and I think to your point, yeah, it just means that we can run so much faster because all this stuff is a given for so many, you know, I hate, I hate to keep saying digital natives, but for so many people who just grew up this technology, I'll actually show you here. Hold on. Let me show you something real quick. Cause this is, I don't know if I'm allowed. Can I share my screen? Yeah, look at that. Man, is there anything Riverside can't do? Ta-da. All right, see this? This is going to be the login that y'all will get shortly. Um, so every LP in 776 will finally have their login to Cerebro. Mm -hmm. And this is the first post I did from our notes. So basically, we do all of our note-taking, all of our work in Cerebro internally. Um, here was, I was going through a deck for a portfolio company, getting ready for office hours. And I was learning a ton about sort of their exceptional growth marketing and advertising. So I was learning some of the ad business. And I was like, oh, this is interesting information, right? And so I just, with two clicks, could highlight that text and then share it to this timeline for our LPs. And so the start of the next month, when a note like this goes up, every LP, they can disable if they want to, but they'll get an email that's like, oh, there's a new post in the timeline. Uh, they can, of course, <laughs> comment on it. <laughs> Uh, as well as emoji sort of vote of approval or not. Uh, and then when they post, and what's cool about this is, and they're also all anonymous. Uh, these are all, this is just a random Greek God. And so um, it also means that of our, of our entire LP base, you know, for the folks who are taking part in this and, you know, commenting on whether it's a memo we've written or just some internal notes, 
all the discussion is anonymous so that we can just surface the best information and the best ideas. Eventually, this is going to be deal flow. There's going to be a bunch of cool stuff there. But like, this is the first stage of a timeline just to do investor communications because there's a generation of people like you and I who've just grown up way more comfortably consuming real-time, tighter content. And every time I write an annual letter, I'd be like, why the hell can I talk about? Like everything is so much has changed in a year. Like I can give you a nice overview, but I, this stuff's going to be out of date in a week. And it's so dynamic. And I think what you're hitting at is how do you deal with the dynamic nature of communication and the mm. ability to have asynchronous communication actually speed up processes with the collision of investing as a team sport. Because I think what you're hitting on is actually something really interesting, which is one is you're aggregating a community of people who all have the same shared interest, which is making 776 the best, <laughs> the, the, the best fund sure. that it can be. And then the, the tentacles of that, all the portfolio companies and helping to support all those companies. But we're all aggregated around a shared interest. You need to create the stadium where we can all play. So this is what Cerebro is, which maybe that that's the goal, right? You wanted to go back to the first Olympics and maybe we're all just in the stadium at the starting oh, line. See, so. now I got to bring, I got to, I, I still, <laughs> I'm still really torn about using Cerebro as the name for it because it's the X-Men reference amidst all of these ancient Greek references. And I mean, it's Spanish too. Like there's no point, it's totally out of place with a bunch of ancient Greek stuff, but it sounds good, right? It's, it sounds cerebral though. It sounds like, yeah, you know, it sounds I like know. it's a forum for people to actually hopefully say some smart things that are helpful, but, but no, but, but joking aside though, on, on this point about investing as a team sport, I wonder whether it's with what you're doing with 776 and creating this online community or meeting place for people to exchange ideas. We can extend that to kind of something you said earlier, which is about how social has changed things and how we're so used to consuming content. How does this change the way that companies, sports teams, all sorts of businesses who want to aggregate community around the idea of investing as a team sport? I mean, you can now bring in people from all around the world in a way that you may not have been able to do before. That to me feels like something that's so profound about all of this. Dude, it's massive. And, and I actually, you know, I'm, I'm the Reddit guy, so I'm a big fan of what pseudonymity or just anonymity can do. I think one of the most exciting things, not just about having an LP diversity goal for, you know, half our LPs are women and 15% are black and indigenous people or black or indigenous people. Um, because I'm I'm thinking about the community of people in the arena and I want them to be a representation, a pretty broad and accurate representation of the country in which we do all of our focused investing in the United States. And then by anonymizing the discussion now on this battlefield, in this arena of ideas, the only ideas that win are based or the ideas that win are based on the words and nothing else. Because you don't know if that person is a really important person at some really fancy endowment or just some random junior associate at some tiny family office. Oh man, that's fascinating. We, we have to unpack this because I think there's there's something embedded in here that is really interesting because you've, you've talked about online identity being really important, right? And that our online identity is as if not more important than our offline identity. You For have- sure. 
you have helped me cross that chasm. Actually, I was a very <laughs> private person online before. Like I, my Instagram profile is private. I didn't use Twitter that much before all of this, but I, in talking to you, I've realized how important it is to have an online identity needs to be really authentic. So I just try to be myself. I don't try to be someone I'm not, or try to be cool. Cause I'm, I'm not that cool. Um, but, <laughs> but that's okay. It's not, we're not, we're not cool. That's the point. You keep it a hundred, which ironically is what is cool. Exactly. But so I guess the question when it comes to anonymity and in the context of sharing great thoughts and ideas, I understand why that can be a good thing because like, then there's no preconceived notion. Nobody, nobody assumes somebody's smarter just because of their background mm -hmm. or who mm -hmm. they are. However, if online identity does matter and people then look at people's identity based on kind of their body of work and what they've done, which is not an anonymous identity necessarily, then, you know, where do you draw that line, right? Because in some ways, not having anonymity may actually be helpful in providing credibility for something when it comes to sharing thoughts and ideas. And people may say, oh, this is actually important like sure. oh, the, the context of this is coming from somebody who actually is an expert in this versus just some anonymous person so this is going to sound like i'm just being a jerk with my glib answer but i actually i was thinking through this very scenario and what i realized was it is actually at least for v1 just good enough to then in those scenarios to preface in your, to literally in your comments, say, I'm Alexis Ohanian, I created Reddit, here's what I think about blah, blah, blah. And so you're anonymous, you get randomly assigned a Greek god. So you're Zeus, right, in that thread. But you're only Zeus in that thread. So the next comment you join will be another Zeus. So you can out yourself for just that discussion where maybe you have something that's like a meaningful, like if, if there's a discussion about the future of social media, maybe it is meaningful that you made Reddit. You can flex that if you want to. Now, okay, this does not solve for people lying about that, but I have a community of a few hundred people. Like it's not, these are all pretty good actors as far as I know. There are investors, like they're, uh, the nice thing with building not for hundreds of millions of people is you're you're it's a much smaller sample size. So people just tend to be less shitty. And and then it's also a very selected group because you had to pay a lot of money to get in. <laughs> so I yeah, we'll see. But again, this is a huge experiment. It, it, I, I just know, dude, I'm on discords for uh, I joined a Dow Flamingo Dow. And I'm on this Discord and this Telegram group with a bunch of people, some of whom I know offline, plenty of people who I just know purely as a pseudonym on the internet, and then other people who I just have no idea, no one knows who they are because they're just anonymous for the purposes of this, you know, DAO to talk about NFTs to invest in. Like, that is weird, right? But in this new internet age, I think it will be fairly normal. And do you trust the people who are anonymous as part of that DAO? because of the quality of the things that they're saying in that online community? Or do you, I mean, or because it's this massive community of people and obviously people are voting to some extent, right, as to what to do. It's does that concern mind. you at all if you don't know who they are, if you don't necessarily trust who they are? Uh, for this, no. I mean, also, right, I'm not this is not my life savings. This is not like, this is money I'm putting in the same mental bucket 
as like an angel investment where I'm just like, I'm probably never going to see this money again. So let me just write it off. Right. This is not. But 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 that's because we don't have very good data because we're still in the early days of this. Uh, But once you have a track record, because it's all on a ledger, once you start to see that over time, I think, you know, it feels in many ways inevitable that there's some some version of this that you and I are going to have in our like retirement accounts. And if we're smart, like Peter Thiel, we'll invest early. We're, we're going to have a Dow in our in our retirement account, huh? That that is going to be our new IRA. I think it's going to happen. Yeah, and again, it sounds insane, but I it feels inevitable. Interesting. I mean, that would be that would be fascinating if it's the. Well, I wonder if you could organize communities around, like, or if you could have retirement accounts organized around communities, whether it's the company or if you were all investors in the same company. And if there's, cause there's, then there's some sort of shared interest and then people may want to, I don't know, this is complete spitballing, but people may want to see the same goal. Yeah. Right. That That's the idea of it. So, I mean, maybe there's something there. I, I feel like we're going to be talking about this for a very long time, Michael. This is, we're, we're in the earliest days of it and it's just getting better and better, man. We need to do some more, uh, some NFT investing in the group chat. <laughs> we, we do. Well, investing is a team sport. So I think we, we should start. We should start doing this. Yeah. All right. Deal. I'm going to go do a board meeting, which is, it, it's going to be fun in its own way, but not as fun as doing a Comics Cap episode. You can pitch the idea of creating a DAO for the board. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. It'll resolve conflict. <laughs> we'll see how that one goes. Okay. Good luck.